I'm now sat with Samil Parikh of PIMCO, one of the managers of our multi-asset fund launched in April 2012. This is the first time we have interviewed someone from PIMCO for these recordings, so I'm very much looking forward to it. Samil, thank you for joining us today. As you are a new name to the SJP fund range, could you tell us about the makeup of the multi-asset fund? Sure. Thank you, Chris, for having me today. As you know, the PIMCO multi-asset strategy that is being implemented on the SJP platform is a truly go-anywhere type of long-term value-oriented absolute return strategy. The goal of the strategy, of course, is to deliver 8% returns over a market cycle with 10 to 12% volatility. And that allows us significant flexibility in terms of allocating the portfolio across equities, bonds, credit, currencies, as well as commodities. Today, the portfolio is roughly about 45% invested in equities, with about 30% of that coming from emerging market equities, in particular Asian emerging market equities, where we see a lot of value. The balance of the portfolio, about 10%, is invested in mortgage credit bonds that are linked to the recovery in the housing market in the United States, where we see a multi-year reflation of home prices. And about 10% of the portfolio is invested in long-term inflation-protected assets, a combination of about 4% in gold and the balance 6% in inflation-linked bonds in the United States as well as here in the UK. The balance of the portfolio is invested in very high-quality government bonds in countries such as Australia, in Brazil, and in Mexico, where real interest rates are high and expected to deliver high after inflation returns over a longer-term period. That's a wonderful broad assessment of, of what the portfolio holds. Perhaps we could dig into a couple of the, the parts of it that you described. Firstly, in respect of the holdings in emerging market equities, what, what attracts you to that part of the market at the current time? So when we think about the equity asset class, we tend to derive the expected returns when we make an investment from three different categories. The expected returns from growth, the expected returns from income, and the expected returns from changes in valuation. Currently, emerging market equities have very positive return prospects in all three categories. On the growth side, we expect emerging market profits to grow at twice the speed of developed market profits. On the income side, emerging market equities provide about 1% to 2% higher dividend yields than developed market equities. And then on a valuation side, emerging market equities are trading at roughly a 20% discount to their developed market equity compatriots based on the last three or four years of very poor price performance of the emerging market equity asset class. So for all three reasons, for valuations being at a discount, for growth expected to be higher, as well as for higher dividend yields, we think that the emerging market equities are the more attractive asset class within equities. So this is actually a secular as well as a cyclical phenomenon? Yeah, we think so. Cyclically, emerging market equities have performed quite poorly, especially over the last 12 months. And the main reason for that is the Chinese slowdown in 2012 took a lot of emerging market equity investors by surprise. That slowdown, we think, has run its course. And with the new government in China coming into place, we've seen a lot of stimulus coming back into the Chinese economy in the forms of new investment spending and new projects, which we think will turn the momentum 
of the profit cycle in emerging markets from being negative to positive in 2013. The second thing I want to talk about was you mentioned the recovery of the U.S. housing market. I'm sure that many of, many of our listeners don't understand the, the impact of a potential U.S. housing recovery on, on not just the global economy, but particularly those parts of the market that you're accessing through these strategies. Could you help us understand that a bit better? Absolutely. So, our base case view for the U.S. housing market is that we will probably have a two to three year cycle where home prices appreciate by about 5% a year before then reverting to a rate of appreciation closer to inflation. From a long-term perspective, home prices in real terms in the United States are about at their long-term average. So it's not as if home prices are very distressed. It's simply that relative to other types of investable assets, real estate in the United States is relatively attractive, uh, especially compared to other high-quality government bonds. So with that view of a two- to three-year cycle of 5% per year appreciation, there are two different impacts that we can think about from an economic perspective. One will be the improvement in investment on the housing market, and we expect about a 2% cumulative positive impact on GDP over this two to three year period. And second will be the the big unknown, which is whether this cycle will deliver a wealth effect to the US consumer. One side of the argument that says that you can't go to heaven twice for the same good deed will tell you that we are recovering from a very depressed level of prices. And because there's a lot of negative equity on the balance sheet of households, that improvements in home prices is not likely to result in the same type of equity withdrawal that leads to the consumption effects. The other side of the argument says U.S. consumers were born to borrow, and if they are able to borrow against their homes, they will, no matter what happened 10 years ago and what happened in the downturn. So, you know, our view is is that both those are genuine uncertainty. Both views are possible. Uh, and so for the time being, we've taken a middle-of-the-road approach where we have said we do expect some wealth effect of higher home prices, but a muted wealth effect relative to history. So history says for every dollar of home price appreciation, you get eight cents of consumption increase because housing is a very prolific asset across the U.S. household sector. We think this time it'll be closer to the equity wealth effect factor, which is about a 3% increase in consumption for every $100 increase in, in home prices. Thanks. That's, that's really interesting. Um, let's go and talk a bit, a bit about commodities. Sure. Um, there's an interesting balance in the portfolio between gold, which is seen by a lot of people as being a very defensive asset, and, yeah. and other exposure to commodities. Could you, again, describe how you think about the balance of the holdings between the two type of instrument? Yeah. So I would say over the last six months, we've made some changes in our commodity position. Firstly, we've overall reduced our allocation to commodities, where currently the net long exposure of the portfolio to commodities is about 5%, 4% in gold and 1% in oil. And that's relative to where we were about 9 or 12 months ago when, towards the inception of the fund when we were running close to a 12% commodity exposure. Generally, in terms of commodity prices, we see the global commodity cycle turning from a price and demand shock cycle, so the sunny side of the commodity cycle, to the uh, to the supply side 
of the commodity cycle. So when we look at global commodity producers, countries like Australia, countries like Brazil, the investment booms that went on in these economies for the last five or 10 years as a result of the price increases are now producing a lot of commodity supply, both in terms of energy, including in the United States, as well as industrial commodities coming out of Australia, Brazil, and other Latin American countries. So while the Chinese economy pivots away from a commodity-centric growth model, the supply side of the global commodity cycle is just starting to ramp up in terms of exports and production. And so we think the real returns on commodities will actually be negative over the secular horizon, over the next three, five, seven years, because this this multi-year commodity cycle looks closer to a peak than where we were five or 10 years ago. So why do we have a 5% commodity allocation? We view gold and oil from a currency perspective. And the way we think about our long gold and long oil positions is that gold will hold its real value even in a currency war environment where major central banks around the world are trying desperately to weaken their currencies in a competitive manner against each other. So we think holding gold against a basket of currencies such as the Japanese yen, the British pound, the US dollar, and the euro will be a positive real return investment. And that's why we continue to hold about a 4% position in gold. Samil, I'm also aware that there is a, a protective overlay, let's describe it as such, on the phone. Could you briefly describe what, what that is and, and, and what it's there to do? Sure. So, Chris, we've done a lot of analysis in terms of historical return distributions for multi-asset portfolios. And what we find is that while on an average year, a multi-asset portfolio can be expected to deliver between 6 and 8% a year, the bulk of the negative years in, in multi-asset portfolio history have been very large negative years. So drawdowns tend to be very large, whereas average positive returns tend to be fairly mediocre, but, but distributed evenly over the years. To take advantage of that observation, in the context of a market that prices the distribution of returns fairly normally, we've decided to implement, as you called it, a protective overlay uh, over the multi-asset fund. And what we try to do is we try to purchase either explicit protection in the form of insurance in the market when the price of that insurance is lower than what a probable distribution would suggest it should be, or we devise other ways to protect the portfolio against the downside, such that the portfolio in any given year will not have more than a 15% drawdown. Other forms of protection could be using negatively correlated strategies that both have positive expected returns. To give you a very simple example of that, our long position in emerging market equities centered around China as being a relatively cheap emerging market equity country is in some form hedged with a long position in Australian government bonds. Now, on a standalone basis, we expect both those investments to have positive returns. Australian government bonds are fairly high yielding, about 4% yields for 10-year bonds relative to one and three quarters percent here in the UK or in the US. But in the event that there is a crisis in the global economy and our equity positions go down in value, we expect our Australian government bond positions to actually go up in value. 
So in our baseline scenario, we expect to make money from both those investments. But in a crisis scenario or in a downturn scenario, the Australian government bond position hedges against the emerging market equity position to ensure that at the portfolio level, we don't see a loss. Samuel, you've shared some fascinating insight on this fund. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thanks, Chris. Any views and opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals and are subject to change. Where individual securities are mentioned, they do not necessarily represent a specific portfolio holding and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase or sell. Please be aware that past performance is not indicative of future performance. The value of an investment may fall as well as rise, and you may get back less than you invested. Returns on equities cannot be guaranteed. Equities do not provide the security of capital characteristic of a deposit with a bank or building society.